right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the first service of 2022. Uh, I hope you all had a good new year. I hope that uh, UC's loss wasn't too disappointing. I know another Georgia-Alabama championship. It's uh, not exactly what we were all rooting for, but hey, we made it. You know, at least we went undefeated and we went to the, the playoffs. So, still kind of exciting. So, go Cats. Uh, anyway, like uh, Daniel said, I'm preaching out of Psalm 16 today. So, we're taking a break from our, our Roman series that we started back in the fall. And during winter break, we're just preaching through individual psalms and going through them and sort of seeing how they connect to our lives today and uh, how they connect to Scripture as a whole. And I, I chose this psalm because uh, it's, it's one that's impacted me personally, uh, one that uh, has really just changed the way that I view life and, and, and the way I live it. And it's got a lot in it, uh, despite only having 11 verses. But there's one major theme underneath all of it. So I, I, I titled the psalm, A Prayer of Faith and Hope in the Lord. But the, the theme that's underneath all of it is this idea that God is better than anything else. That, that God is the best thing that we can have. Now, I know a lot of you are probably on uh, winter break right now if you're still in college. I haven't had winter break in a few years. I graduated back in 2019. But I did have the last week off. And uh, I remember back in winter break and even during this week, you, you ever do too much of just something you want to do, like you have too much free time, and at the beginning, it's like really fun, you know, you're reading the books you want to read, you're playing the games you want to play, you're sleeping in until noon, you know, doing the things you want to do, but then like a week goes by and it gets less fun, a few weeks go by, and usually at this point in winter break, it's kind of starting to drag on, and you're like, oh, I don't like classes, but they seem almost preferable to this sort of uh, uh, free time that I have, and you know, it's this sort of just idea of like, you know, we have all these things that entertain us and that we put our time into, but they're not ultimately satisfying. Like, these are great opportunities to, to really see that. Like, when you have a month to do nothing and you pursue all these fun, entertaining things and then they don't satisfy you, it really should wake you up to realizing like, wow, there's something more that my heart desires that's not in these things. And when I have the opportunity to pursue these things, I realize that. And so the steam underneath this psalm today is just this idea that God is better than anything else, that that thing that your heart is crying out for, that even when you're satisfying yourself with all these different things, sleeping until noon, playing the games you want to play, seeing the people you want to see, and that's not enough. And that's because God is what you're looking for. God is enough. So I want to pray before I get into this psalm here, and then we're going we're gonna to talk through it. So, God, I'm just so grateful that you are good. God, we are so grateful that you love us, that you want us to connect with you. God, that you love us and care for us and that we are satisfied in you. God, help us to pursue you. Fix our hearts so that we desire you and we desire what you want for our lives. God, be with us today as we go through this psalm. Help it to impact us. Help us to understand your word and help me to deliver it faithfully. God, we are so grateful for who you are and all that you do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. So when, as we get started, I want to read through the whole psalm here. Just really take it in. It's only 11 verses. So I'm going to go ahead and get started. So it opens up saying, Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All of my delight is in them. 
The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Cool. So the first thing I want to address here is, uh, you might have seen it, uh, this little header at the top. It's called a mictum of David. So if you're reading along in your Bible, uh, the Psalms have these little interesting uh, headers. So the people who translate your Bibles, they'll put in headers. So if you're reading your Bible, you get this little bold text up here. My version says, confidence in the Lord. And that's just the translators trying to tell you sort of what the summary of this section is. But the psalmists are doing the same thing. The psalmists have already included that. So that's the mictum of David is actually, it's not a verse, but it's part of the original scripture. And so if you're like me, you probably don't know what the word mictum means. In fact, I know you don't know what the word mictum means because I looked it up and nobody knows what the word mictum means. <laughs> yes. So, we can all just agree together that, uh, you know, none of us are that intelligent. We still have words we don't know. But this is one of those words where we have no easy way to translate it. So, it appears six times in the Psalms, uh, one here, and then five Psalms in a row. Uh, nobody really knows exactly what it means. So, we'll move on. But I just figured if you're curious, we don't know what Mikta means. Because I was definitely curious, and I was like, huh. Why didn't they translate that word? Because usually we'll just translate it. Anyway, moving on from Mictum, uh, I want to talk about this psalm and really just break it apart into its parts and talk about all the ideas that it's conveying. So for a Hebrew psalm like this, written thousands of years ago, every line of it has meaning for our lives today, which is just amazing. And God is good, and his word is eternal. So this psalm actually provides a great example for us today in, in how we should live and pray, and it actually shows a better understanding of the resurrection than a lot of Christians have. So I'm going to break this psalm into seven individual parts. We're going to take time to look at each one of them and discuss what they mean at large for our lives and how this psalm connects with the rest of Scripture. So the first part is this first verse here. And the, the theme of this verse is to seek refuge in the Lord. The verse says, protect me, God, for I take refuge in here. So this is the opening to the psalm. The psalmist is setting the tone. The opening is always very important in psalms because that tells you the tone, the theme the psalmist is going to have. And here the psalmist opens by saying, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. So there's a lot of different lenses you can use when you look at Scripture. You can look at uh, Scripture in different ways. You can say, okay, well, what is this Scripture trying to teach me about God? What does this Scripture mean for my life? You can do the historical and cultural research around it and really get some depth of understanding. But for today, I really want to take just two lenses. I want to look at what is this scripture telling me about God's character, and what does this scripture have to do with me in today's life? So the first thing with this scripture, as we see, it shows that God is a protector. The psalmist trusts that God will protect him. That's why he is seeking refuge in the Lord. And then what it means for us is that we should seek refuge in the Lord, that God will protect us if we seek refuge in him. 
And to seek refuge in God is to both understand that he is a protector and to also decide to let him protect us. Because a lot of God's protection involves us giving up control of our lives because we are not the best captains of our own ships. And the way to, that we let him protect us is by submitting to him. That's where this next verse comes in. This next verse is about submitting to the Lord. It says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. And just a little fun Hebrew thing here. It says, I said to the Lord, that word is Yahweh. That's the Hebrew name for God. It means I am, the great I am. I said to the Lord, I said to Yahweh that you are my Lord. That's the word Adonai, which means Lord or ruler. So I said to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. Just to clear that up, he's not using the word Lord there twice, but using it in different ways because we translate Lord to mean God's name and also to mean a ruler. So he's saying, I said to God, you are my ruler. I have nothing good besides you. So if we want to take refuge in the Lord, we actually have to see him as Lord. God has good plans for us. God has good things that he wants to do for us. And a lot of times that, that involves us giving up things that we want to do. Because a lot of those things that we want to do are self-destructive, harmful. All the things that God wants for us are helpful. They might not always be easy. They might not always feel good in the moment, but they are for our good. And then this idea of taking refuge in the Lord and submitting to him comes with the realization that there is nothing more deserving of worship, no one more deserving of loyalty, and no one greater than God. As the psalmist puts it, I have nothing good besides you. Now, this is a psalm, it's a meekdom of David, so it's probably about David, or David wrote it, or someone wrote it, inspired by David. But if we assume that David wrote it, he had a lot that we would call good. The guy was a king, he had a ton of money, he had probably some good friends, at least friends who wanted his money. Uh, and he had a few wives, uh, which is good or bad, I don't know. I have one wife and she's fantastic, but I don't know if I can handle two wives. I, I'm very forgetful, like remembering my wife's birthday, which is tomorrow. Everybody tell my wife happy birthday. Uh, <laughs> remembering one, that's, that's good enough for me too, that's difficult. But anyway, he had, he had a lot of good, a lot that we would call good. And he says, nothing is good besides you. You are the only thing that is good that I have. And it's this understanding like nothing compares to God, which makes it easy to submit to him. When you understand that God is good, that God is the best thing, that God is this thing deserving of all of our praise, all of our worship, it becomes easier to submit to him. And I know a lot of times it, it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult lesson to learn. And a lot of that comes from our human perspective. Because if I were to say, you know, submit to me and call me your Lord and you have nothing good besides me, uh, that's a lie. Uh, I have some good qualities, uh, but I'm not a perfect person, uh, and I am not someone deserving of all loyalty and respect. And so when we, we see God do this, we put it in a human perspective. We think, well, like, I wouldn't even trust myself to be king over everyone, so why does God get to do it? It's because he is God. It's because he is deserving of this. It's because he is all good, all knowing, all perfect, and all loving. God is the only person who deserves it. And so if God said, yeah, you can, you know, put your faith in somebody else, or you can have loyalty in somebody else, that would be God deceiving you, because what could be better than God? And so if we regard God as the Lord of our lives, then we should change the way that we live, and that's where we go to these next couple verses. 
These next couple of verses relate to how we regard the world. These verses say, As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. So here, the, the holy people in the land, or maybe in your translation, if you're reading along, uh, uses the word saints. Uh, these are the people in the original context uh, that it's referring to who are faithfully keeping God's commands and upholding the law. Uh, and in today's context, it's actually exactly the same. We just live under a different covenant than the ancient Hebrews. Uh, and here the psalmist is saying, the holy people in the land, these people who are upholding your commandments, they're the noble ones. These are the people I should respect, not the wealthy, the famous, the rich and the powerful. No, the people who are upholding your commandments, the people who are doing what you want, these are the noble ones. My delight is in them. And then he talks about the people who are not doing that, the people who are not upholding God's command. The people, as the psalmist says, have taken another God for themselves. He says that their sorrows will multiply. So those who took another God for themselves in the original context were following another God. And today, it's the same thing, except our gods look a little different. We don't call them Baal or Abimelech. Uh, no, that's not a god. I can't remember ancient Sumerian god names. It's unimportant. But we call them things like wealth and fame and pride. You know, we still have things that we worship. Uh, it's a quote from a few different people. Uh, I know a famous evangelist said it, that we all worship something, that there is no absence of worship, that the only thing we have when it comes to choice in worship is what, what we worship, not whether we worship. So we will either worship ourselves, we will worship someone else or something else, or we will worship God. So those who take another God for themselves, whether it's a God that's some idol or it's ourselves or it's some abstract concept like fame. If you pursue that, your sorrows will multiply. Now, it might feel good at the beginning. Like if you have this, so there are good things that we, we pursue, but we shouldn't worship, like success. It's good to be successful. It's good to work hard. It's good to uh, be a good worker, to be a good whatever it is that you do. And there's an Abraham Lincoln quote that whatever you are, be a good one. So there's good in that. But if that is where you find your satisfaction, if that is what defines you, then the farther you go down that path, the more that you will realize that's not satisfying you. Uh, a great example of this is Tom Brady. I don't know if you've ever watched like post-Super Bowl interviews with Tom Brady. Like the man is a machine. The man is fantastic, great quarterback. I don't care if you don't like him or the Patriots that he used to play for. Tom Brady is a, a great quarterback. You at least have to admit that. But when you watch him in these post-Super Bowl interviews, he's like disappointed a lot of the time. Like, yeah, great, we won. I'm going to hit it, and we're going to do it again next year. The man's got, what, eight rings now? We have to eight? Am I correct? Seven, eight? Oh, it doesn't matter. He's won the Super Bowl a lot of times. It's amazing. He's going for 10. He's going to put a ring on every finger. And even then, he won't be satisfied. And he's talked about this before in interviews. It's like, he just feels like there's something missing, because there is. Because this idea of success, or whatever your God may be, it won't satisfy you. It is not the ultimate good. And the more you pursue it, the more your sorrows multiply, because the more you're trying to fill this hole in yourself with something that's not fulfilling. And it's going to harm you. The more you, the more you commit to it, the more it consumes you, the more it harms you, the more you lose what you were meant to be. 
And if you take a look at the world and the pursuit of other gods, you can see the psalmist is right, that their sorrows are multiplied. And I want to talk about the, the second part of the verse 4 here, where it's, it says, um, I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. This is a, something we don't really have a good mental picture for because we don't do anything with drink offerings. So I want to just give a little bit of background here. So the drink offering, it's this Hebrew practice uh, where they pour wine over a sacrifice. And I've got a, verse, a few verses we're going to read about it in Numbers 28. And those verses just describe the practice. Here's what they say. It says, Each day present two unblemished year-old lambs as a regular burnt offering. Offer one lamb in the morning and the other lamb at twilight, along with two quarts of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with a quart of olive oil from crushed olives. It is a regular burnt offering established at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. The drink offering is to be a quart with each lamb. Pour out the offering of beer to the Lord in the sanctuary area. Offer the second lamb at twilight, along with the same kind of grain offering and drink offering as in the morning. It is a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So it's just this practice where they'd sacrifice something and they'd pour out a bit of wine or beer or whatever. Uh, beverage of their choice was over it. And it's just a sacrifice because you had a bit of wine and now you don't have wine because you poured it out. But what was happening here with these drink offerings of blood is that you had uh, people who were creating syncretic practices. So a syncretic practice is where you try and synchronize one religion with another. And so you take the drink offering of the Hebrews and you mix blood offerings of other uh, gods together. And so they were taking these drink offerings and they were mixing the wine with the blood and pouring it out. And the issue wasn't that there was uh, necessarily in the practice, it was that they were disobeying God's commandments. They were worshiping other gods. And so what's happening here, what the psalmist is getting at, he's just saying, I am not going to take part in these heathen practices. I am not going to do what these people do. I am going to do what you want me to do. So today, drink offering of blood, I don't think any of us are really tempted to give drink offerings of blood. But there are lots of things we are tempted to do that the world wants us to do. I think one of the biggest ones is self-worship. Uh, if you watch a lot of commercials, they're all sort of focused on really making you be yourself. I watched a gym commercial the other day, and it bugged me for two reasons. One, because it had a terrible moral, and two, because it ruined a, some Greek fable that my history nerd got upset about. But anyway, it's a gym commercial that's about... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's this woman's telling these kids, she's like teaching, the, uh, telling the, the story of uh, Narcissus, I think his name was, uh, a man who found himself so attractive he was constantly looking in his uh, reflection because he was just obsessed with himself. This is where the word narcissist comes from. It's from this, this fable. Uh, and the way she tells it is that one day he just kept looking in his appearance until he became a gift to the world. So what's wrong with self-worship? In fact, we should worship ourselves because we're great. Now, go get a gym membership because you don't look good enough. That was the moral of it. Uh, and my history nerd got annoyed because Narcissus wound up falling into the lake and drowning. And as a reminder to not be a narcissist, that's where this one flower began to grow at the side of the lakes. And so that's, that's the, the fable story there, uh, which had a definite different ending than the story that this commercial was telling. But that's, that's a big theme. That we should worship ourselves. That's, you know, pretty on the nose. You don't usually see commercials that literally tell you to worship yourself, but it's an underlying theme in a lot of our culture. So this idea of pursuing ourselves or pursuing things that God does not want for us, that's what this psalm is 
this verse of the psalm is getting at. So the next concept that's in the psalms, the next couple verses, is instead of looking at the world the way that people who don't know God do, but to, re- to look at God and regard him as enough. So this is what it says. It says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So here the psalmist is using uh, real-life practical things to describe how he feels about God. So he's, he's talking about this, uh, this idea of portion. So the portion uh, is referring to something. Uh, all Israelites got a portion of land, uh, and that's what the portion is talking about. And then in verse 6, he's talking about boundary lines falling. This is uh, the boundary lines are literally your property lines. So he's saying, uh, using this idea of property lines falling in a good place, meaning that he got either a good amount of land or land that was high quality or sort of a mixture of both there. And so he's using these, these earthly comparisons, but he's saying, God, you are my portion. You are the blessing that I have. You are my cup of blessing. And since you are my portion, man, the boundary lines of this portion have fallen on excellent land. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So he's taking this idea of, of wealth and using it to compare to God, how normal people would pursue wealth. That's how he feels about God. And he looks at what God has given him and at God himself and says, man, what a beautiful inheritance. God is indeed a beautiful inheritance. And this connects to the idea we saw back in the beginning of this. We have nothing good besides God. You know, like I said, with this idea of pursuing all of our pursuits that we have time to do uh, during winter break and you just find that it doesn't satisfy you. Everything that we pursue pales in comparison to God. God is a beautiful inheritance because what is more valuable than the Lord? So the next concept, the next lesson in this, this psalm is that we should let God guide us. Well, verse seven and, verses 7 and 8 say this, I will bless the Lord who counsels me, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand and will not be shaken. So it's clear that the psalmist trusts the Lord and allows the Lord to guide him. Because of this, the psalmist is not shaken. That's pretty, pretty easy to understand that. Because I trust God, and because God is with me, I am not shaken. Nothing can undo me. And just because this is so easy to say and easy to read, uh, and, easy, and an easy idea to convey in two verses, oh, trust God and God will be with you and nothing will shake you doesn't mean that it's easy to practice. Trust in the Lord it takes time and practice to develop. And I, I uh, wanted to include a verse here uh, from Philippians, or a few verses here, that I feel really give some good counsel on, on how we can practice trusting in the Lord. So this is what Paul says in the letter to the Philippians. He says, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So here what Paul is saying, he's talking about this, this constant commitment, this, this dedication to trusting in the Lord. He's talking about praying consistently through prayer and petition, asking your requests for God. And then saying the peace of God, when you do this, will come and bless you. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then he gives this, this sort of mental exercise where he says, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, any moral excellence, anything praiseworthy, focused on these things. So what Paul is encouraging you to do here is he's saying, look at the good. Look at the good that God is and look at the God, good that God has given you. Let that be the things that you focus on. A beautiful example of this is Peter when he gets out of the boat. And Jesus is walking on the water, coming to this boat, and Peter gets out, and he's walking on the water, and his face is focused. He's focused on Jesus. He's focused on whatever is good, pure, beautiful. He's focused on, on the Lord. But then his eyes come off of that, and he sees the waves, and he's terrified, and he sinks into the water. This is a great example of, of how our lives often are. You know, uh, I'm someone who struggles with anxiety, and I do my best when, I, when I'm focused on the Lord, when, when I dwell on these things that are good. But man, when I take my eyes off of that and I look at difficulties, when I look at money struggles, when I look at job issues, when I look at, I bought a house recently and so now I have a million other things to worry about. When I look at that, it becomes a lot more difficult to find peace in the Lord because I'm not looking at him, I'm not trusting in him. And so that's what I want to encourage you to do, to, to take Paul's advice here and to focus on these things that are good, to let that be what your mind dwells on and not on what could go wrong. Because ultimately, like it says in Romans 8, nothing's going to take away, nothing's going to separate us from God. That's what really matters. This is a constant commitment, and it's one that we'll never do perfectly here. So it's something that we always have to, to pursue, but it's something that gets easier as we do it, and God wants us to do it. So we just have to ask. Just ask God, and he will help us in this. So the next idea here that we see in verses 9 and 10 is that we, we find comfort through trust in the Lord. These verses say, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. So I want to stop here before we dig into this, and I want to focus on this word Sheol. shows up in a few places in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a word that is kind of fuzzy with our understanding of it. Uh, it generally means the afterlife. Uh, sometimes it's translated as grave or netherworld or Hades, uh, sometimes in your translations. And, and it, we understand that it means afterlife, but where it becomes fuzzy is when we try to understand how the Hebrew, Hebrews viewed, viewed Sheol, and we weren't sure exactly what their understanding of the afterlife was. And, and that's because the Bible spends very little time talking about heaven or hell. So a lot of how people picture heaven and hell, it's informed by their culture. And this was very much the case with the ancient Hebrews. Uh, for the Hebrews at the time, the predominant view in the Middle Eastern world was that uh, when you died, you just went to some sort of like shadowy afterlife place, uh, 
somewhere below the ground where you had like limited access to like the world of the living maybe. Sometimes you were ghosts, maybe you didn't have any ghosts. And so that sort of colored how the, the Hebrews viewed the afterlife. But for the Hebrews uh, and those who read the scriptures, uh, there was a hope that didn't exist in other cultures. And that's because they had this hope of a coming restoration and a resurrection. They knew that this uh, ideal that was in the Garden of Eden was, was coming back and that God had a plan for them. So they didn't dwell too much on worrying about what the afterlife was going to look like because they knew that God loved them and wanted their best. But to give an idea sort of how the Old Testament describes the resurrection, because this, is a, this passage itself gives reference to the resurrection, I want to look at a passage in Daniel that, that is very clearly talking about a resurrection. So here in Daniel it says, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So here you see in Daniel that there's some clear understanding that there will be a resurrection and some people will receive eternal glory and some people will not. Eternal contempt is the words are used here. So there was some understanding of it, but like I said, they, they just trusted that the Lord had their best interest in mind. And the same is true today with sort of our understanding of the afterlife. It's also largely influenced by things outside of the Bible. If you consider uh, things you think about heaven and hell, there's a good chance that most of them come from things that aren't scripture. Things like Greek and Roman fables to talk about like Hades or some version of heaven. Uh, things like Dante's Divine Comedy that talks about heaven and hell, or John Milton's Paradise Lost. And many other fictional tales have colored our views of heaven and hell more than scripture. So we get ideas like Satan and the demons ruling hell and torturing you, which is nowhere to be found in scripture, but it's so prevalent in our culture because of all of these fictional stories. And again, this is because the Bible spends not too much time talking about this thing, because the people in the Bible trust that the God has their best interests at heart. And this is actually the reason I, I chose this psalm, is because I spent a lot of my life, I think it was until I was 19 or 20, terrified of heaven. Yeah, I said that right. I wasn't terrified of hell, I was terrified of heaven. Uh, hell made sense to me, uh, and I was never really scared of it because I never planned on going there. But heaven did frustrate me and, and, and scare me because this idea of eternal existence just didn't make sense to me. And I couldn't picture an eternal existence where I was joyful. I couldn't picture an eternal existence where I was satisfied. And that's because I, I had this just human understanding of things. You know, I grew up in a very blessed household. I had a lot of the things I wanted. Uh, I remember one day for a life group, we had this icebreaker where we asked, what's the one thing you never got in your childhood uh, that you really wanted? And I didn't have an answer because I got pretty much everything I wanted. And I still was a very depressed kid. And so I imagined a heaven, this place where you, you do nice things, where you don't get hurt. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll enjoy it for 100 years or 1,000. But at some point, it's going to torture me 
because I'm existing and I have nothing that satisfies me. I've seen this in my life. I have all these blessings and they're not satisfying me. And it took me years until I finally realized, man, the issue here is in you. It's not in this concept of heaven. It's that you don't trust God. You don't believe that God has created a place for you that is eternally pleasing, eternally satisfying. And that's where this next verse brings so much comfort to me. It's a simple verse with simple words. When you really sit and dwell on it, it is immensely impactful. So the last verse of this passage, verse 11, talks about joy in God's presence, and it says this. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. This verse just sheds light on how the, the psalmist views God that gives comfort knowing that, that God is this source of abundant joy and eternal pleasure. That being in God's presence, this is the thing that we've been missing. If you've been looking for that thing, that thing that is empty inside of you, a thing that I felt for years and still feel where I'm empty, I'm missing something, it's God's presence, it's being with him. I'd like to, the last scripture I want to share is from Revelation 4. I'm just going to read all of it because it gives this beautiful picture of heaven. And here's what it says. After this, I looked and there was in heaven an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately, I was in the spirit and there was a throne in heaven and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes and golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. And four living creatures covered their eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Whenever the Bible gives an insight into heaven, Whenever we see these pictures, sometimes we see it in Isaiah, sometimes we see it in other places, Revelation 4 being one of the most brilliant examples, we see worship, eternal, never-ending worship. We see these, these living creatures that God has created. We see these elders bowing down, constantly declaring God's goodness. That is what we see in Scripture. And a lot of our visions of heaven, they're weak in comparison 
love our things like, oh, we float on clouds and we get to talk to dead loved ones. Nice. But it's nothing compared to the eternal worship of the eternal God, who is ultimately satisfying, who is better than anything else, the source of all joy, the source of all that is good. Nothing is good besides him. We were created that we might worship him. We were created to glorify him. That is what our purpose is. And that is the joy that we find here, that God created us for this purpose, and he fills us with joy when we fulfill that purpose. This is our life's mission, to worship God and bring others to worship him. And this is this underlying theme of this psalm, and a big theme of the Bible, that God is our end goal, that worshiping him, that being in his presence and experiencing that joy, that is what this is all driving towards. And I really hope that you'll take time to dwell on that, that you'll appreciate God in comparison to the other things that we have. Because when we understand that God is better than all things, that God is the ultimate good, it becomes easier to follow him. It becomes easier to do the things that he wants us to do. Because we know that he's right. So I'm going to pray. I just want you to this time just, just ask God to lead you. Ask God to help you in faith. You would grow in faith and understanding of him and that you would just know the joy that is to be in his presence. I'm going to pray. God, we are so grateful for your word. Grateful that even after thousands of years, passages like this still have immense meaning for our lives. God, we are grateful that you are good. We are grateful that you are worthy of all praise. God, as we enter into this time of worship, open our hearts, help us to understand just how good you are, just how wonderful it is to worship you. God, that worshiping you is a blessing. We thank you so much for your son who died and rose again, that we might be reunited with you, that we might experience the eternal joy of your presence and that we might worship you in your presence. God, we are so grateful for how you have made us. We are grateful for how you love us, how you care for us, and how you guide us. Help us to look more like you. Help us to pursue you. And help us to one day be reunited with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.